0: I do think there's a bit of characterizing her as a good woman who does not deserve this, which begs the question of, well, who's the bad woman who does deserve it?
1: Welcome to Cringe Watchers, the podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex.
2: I'm Layla Darby, And I'm Lori Edelman. This episode we watched Love is Blind and asked Reina Gattuso, if love is blind, how can we see the red flags? Layla, are you binging or cringing this week? I am binging in a very
1: escapist way. Uh, A somewhat cringy show called Tell Me Lies. I don't know if you've seen the show. It's on Hulu. It is ridiculously watchable. And the Hulu show sets it up as uh, a young woman, maybe in her 20s, who is about to go to a wedding with people she went to college with. And she's having very passionate flashbacks to what you understand to be a college lover on again, off again, the someone who had big impact on her life. And then you watch these, uh, the series, and it starts with her freshman year of college and her incredibly toxic problematic relationship with this guy. What is interesting about the show is that from the get go, it's not even a spoiler, you also see his perspective. And you know, from the beginning, he's not very honest with her. He's not exclusive with her, he leads her on the title Tell Me Lies is is pretty apt. And I find that somehow really watchable. It's a lot of problematic heroes. I also read after watching the show that the book that it's based on tell me lies a novel has even more depth and and some eating disorder stuff and 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 sort of the real world consequences of toxic and abusive relationships. And so I ordered the book and I read that too. Uh, It's not perfect. But I do think that it's made me think as we go into this conversation about our show today, why we're always rooting for couples to get together, even when we see the red flags. And it's something that I find myself doing all the time. I think we talked about that with uh, Smita when we were looking at Mayor of Easttown. Even when you don't love the couple, I feel like society has programmed me for happily ever after. And I'm more and more self-conscious about that, but I'm really glad that we got to to dig into today's topic. But anyway, are you
2: binging or cringing? Thanks so much, Layla. And I will check that out. Uh, We definitely talk about some of those social pressures in this episode. And it reminds me of the dialogue that happened around the Netflix show, You, where... Uh, People were literally trying to tell the people who created that show that their (laughs) character was not abusive stalker when they actually created him to be exactly that. Um, So it just shows you how deeply embedded these issues are. Today, I am fully cringing. Now, I don't always share personal updates on this show, but I need everyone to know about the reign of terror that particular Stray Cat has put. All over my building, myself and my housemates included this weekend. Um, I'm cringing cats, Layla, that's correct. I'm cringing stray cats who, as the weather drops, might be feeling a little bit chilly. Maybe they're feeling <laughs> they want to be cozy. They see the, the candles getting lit. They smell the mold cider. They see the pumpkins and they feel, hey, it's time for me to get cozy too. Why don't I just dart inside for the rest of this? cold season. And that's exactly what a stray cat on my bedside block did. And it took me a full ass four days. That's right. Four days of concerted, multiple concerted efforts to get this cat out of my building. We had brooms, vacuums. We tried the kind route with salmon. We tried the mean route with shrieking. The cat was not budging. And I just want everyone to know this is a PSA. You may think cats are cute. You may want a cat, but an unwanted cat entering your domain will not easily leave. So buckle up. I feel you. I will miss the group chat
1: contents. I feel like uh, your your cat saga really, really unveiled who among our friends uh is cold-hearted. Who are the cat lovers <laughs> or the bleeding hearts? There's some mean <laughs> advice in there. I mean, I wanted the cat out, but I, I even I have my limits. <laughs> I will say that the piece that you didn't leave out, that you didn't get to just to out you a little bit is that at one point I believe you gave that cat some gourmet salmon. So why it stuck around a few days. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, you finally convinced me to watch some reality TV.
2: Yes, I feel like this is the perfect revenge for me um, because last episode you had me watching some crown period piece type of stuff. Um, now, welcome to my
1: world. Yeah, I feel like uh, I'm a little uh, ashamed to be set up as the grump in this setting, but I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm not sure I'll ever get back the three hours that it took to watch what we talked about today. But uh, on today's episode, we we watched the show Love is Blind and specifically we watched the three episode unhinged, reunion show called After the Altar, which brought back together the cast of season two of Love is Blind, which is uh, something that you binged and I did not, and you and our guests and I got to
2: discuss. We did things a little bit differently this time, and we had me and our guest explain things to you since you only watched the last three episodes of this season, and what a guest she was. Um, Today, we have a very special treat for you. We spoke with Raina Gattuso, who was the famous sex columnist at Feministing um, for many years and really was constantly dropping the mic with her column at Feministing which was then later picked up by Cecily Bowen aka at Bad Fat Black Girl, you'll recognize as another guest on our show. We love platforming, feministing alum, and Raina has gone on to a fantastic career. Um, She writes not only about sex, love, and relationships, but also covers pop culture and queer culture and is really just a fantastic guns for hire writer.
1: And notably, before we get any further, is not a therapist and neither are any of us. So disclaimer, we are not relationship experts. We are self-proclaimed experts and feminists and uh, reality TV watchers, I guess all of us now. That's
2: right. And since we're doing housekeeping, I also want to put a light content warning on this episode if you didn't figure out from the title. We are touching on toxic relationships um, we get into some of the specific red flags and we talk about some abuse. So if that's something that doesn't feel pleasant for you, please maybe consider skipping this one. And on the
1: topic of housekeeping, uh, you might notice some background noise. We all live in Brooklyn. We tape this
2: at night. I think it adds to the reality. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Reina Gattuso. Reyna, we're so happy to have you on the show. Hi, I'm so happy to finally be on It's a long time coming. We've been stalking you a little bit Uh, to get you here. It's been consensual, yeah. (laughs) And I'm using that word intentionally because we're talking about all kinds of toxic behaviors here on the show today.
1: Yeah, and full disclosure, we once invited you to come on before and you said, no, I want to talk about Love is Blind. So we waited (laughs) and we brought you back for that.
0: Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about season eight of Are You the One, which is – the world's best queer season of a dating show, but that's a
2: dream for the future. <laughs> okay. Well, never say never. And you could be our first repeat guest, um, which I think is a very wonderful level of podcast friendship.
0: Yeah, that might be an entire podcast to itself.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, well, we want to jump in because I know we all have a lot of thoughts about the topic that we're talking about today. And I will say, Rena, you have been probably one of the most involved guests in terms of helping us prepare for today's show. um, Because this is actually a really, I I think, serious topic that we want to treat responsibly um, and thoughtfully. And you have helped us do that. Um, And so we have some scenarios that we have pulled out to kind of talk about because in many ways, Love is Blind has so many different storylines and so many different characters that it's not possible to discuss all of them. So we're gonna do a sort of spotlight on some particular couples and particular scenarios. And our dear um, podcast co host Layla has not watched the entire show. She's only watched after the altar, um, the most recently released three episodes of the show. And so today you went I, Reyna, are going to explain to Layla a little bit of what she may have missed. So for those in the audience who maybe haven't watched Love is Blind ever or have only watched some of it, never fear, we got you. I'm really hoping that you guys can recap the joy of the
1: run-up too, because only watching a reunion show is like watching the end of relationships. And I've got to assume that the level of investment that people have in these relationships is because you first saw them fall in love or at least have some fun. Because uh, I was texting Lori when I was watching uh, binging these three uh, season two
2: reunion shows after the altar. And it was it's bleak. I'm depressed. Cringe watchers know my love for depression shows. I would put this in a depression show category in a way. There's an element of schadenfreude to it all in the sense that, like, I think it's pretty easy to feel like at least I'm not in this situation. Um, But we will get to all of this. Reina, let's jump into our sort of overall explanation of the premise of this show for those who don't know. So Reina, do you just want to kind of share with folks who have no idea They've never heard of Love is Blind. What should they be expecting and understanding about this show?
0: Yeah, first of all, that title, oh man, not well chosen. (laughs) Um, I think it is ableist or questionable at very minimum. The scenario, the premise of the show is that a bunch of people... Uh, who are split into binary genders and seem to want to date people of a different gender. So it's like structured uh, in terms of quote unquote hetero relationships. A bunch of people audition to basically be put in a apartment away from the world where all of the men are living with men. All of the women are living with women. And every day they sit in pods. Which are like windowless rooms where they talk to one other person on a date without seeing each other. And the whole premise is like, can you fall in love without seeing what the other person looks like? And the refrain they keep asking is, is love truly blind? Which, again, is cringe in and of itself. And then they're encouraged to basically choose a match and propose, sight unseen, as the hosts keep telling us. And then if they match and accept their proposal, they go on a beachy, sexy vacation in a resort, and then go back to their home city to prepare for weddings that obviously happen in the grand finale where the audience sees whether the couple say, I do or I don't. (laughs) that was the part that I didn't quite understand only watching the recap
1: like whether or not they're gonna get married they all have weddings and then they leave it as a big reveal at the altar just for maximum humiliation exactly yes yep okay
2: that's exactly right you do get it
0: (laughs) yeah correct I mean I think you wrote the series
2: (laughs) (laughs) and I think Reyna you gave a wonderful description I really appreciate that you called out that the show is really like centering heterosexuality. um, We note that there has been one out bisexual contestant from season one, and that was a black man whose sexuality was not revealed to his fiance until after they were engaged. Needless to say, that did not go well. The couple split up in a very toxic and dramatic fashion. I'm like still personally peeling from. Yeah, it's painful. It's hard to watch. Yes, there have been no openly transgender people. The show's format basically just like doesn't account for gay people to date each other or any people who are not of the opposite sex to date each other. And I will also say the show is a huge hit for Netflix. So Layla aside, season one alone apparently had 30 million viewers. So this is not a show um, that is getting ignored. It's having a lot of impact on the culture, as they say.
0: Yeah, and it's like typical of reality dating shows where the structure of the show mimics the structure of like marriage to someone who is of a different gender um, as the goal of life and the goal of the narrative structure.
2: That's so true. Okay, well, I think we wanna just jump right into it. And for those who do watch Love and Blind, two of like the season two um, sort of breakout stars, love them, hate them, people who were pitted as um, enemies and are very controversial were Deepty and Shake. So we want to talk about this storyline a little bit more deeply. Um, so Deepty was originally engaged to Shake, and she ended up saying no to him at the altar and quote choosing herself. She actually said that that's what she was doing. Um, when she rejected Sheikh at the altar. But throughout their courtship, um, Sheikh placed an emphasis on dt's appearance before meeting her, um, before even seeing her. He would ask leading questions within the pod to try to discover like whether she was skinny, famously asking in the pods if she thought he would be able to carry her on his shoulders at a music festival um, as a means of sort of trying to game out how much she weighs. After they became engaged and he did see her, he would routinely comment that she was a wonderful p- person. He really went over the top about this. And this is something I want to talk to both of you about. But he had trouble being attracted to her. He really kind of put her in the auntie box in a way. I wouldn't even call it a friend zone. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it was really weird and painful Um, to the point where shake's own mother sort of dressed him down on camera in the show and was like, the way you're talking, it does not sound like you deserve a bride like Deep tea So that was kind of a highlight. And then after the show wrapped, Shake became even more controversial because in the reunion episode, not the part, um, Layla, that we had you watch, he defended his actions and kind of tried to incorporate this weird meta critique of the show and the nature of reality television which effectively alienated the entire cast so he blamed it on the reality tv he's now publicly dating a blonde white woman who is being vilified on social media and he did not even appear once in the most recently released reunion episodes so i have questions for both of you about this just based on what you've heard Layla and reina based on what you saw What is going on with this storyline? Why does Deep D and even another contestant on the show, Natalie, you know, how does she get depicted as like this woman of virtue? Like she's both this woman of virtue, right? Who everyone agrees, no one disagrees that she is just a great person, a perfect person and depicted as a woman scorned, almost in the same breath. Like, what's the relationship between um, these two constructions, which strike me as both, like, not possibly um, accounting for her full humanity? And, like, are they just blatantly sexist? Do they have foundations in sexism? Like, how do these things um, show up for you all as you're thinking about Deep D and Shake?
0: For sure, there's this characterization of her um, as this, like, good kind and like virtuous person who doesn't deserve to be treated like this which agree and also no one deserves to be treated that way um so i definitely think that the other people in the cast speak of her i mean i don't know these people i know they're real people i'm sure she's very nice you know Who, who am i to say but the point isn't that right the point is How do we portray, how do we talk about women as ways to justify or contest the ways we see them being treated or treating themselves? Um, So for sure, I do think there's a bit of characterizing her as a good woman who does not deserve this, which begs the question of, well, who's the bad woman who does deserve it?
1: Yeah. You know, it took me a while to realize in watching the three episodes that I watched, which were basically before, during and after some sort of party uh, or like weekend away of <laughs> yeah. what seemed like most but not all of the people who were in season two. It took me a long time to realize that Deep Deep was the the center of that media store. Because that is the one thing I knew about Love is Blind. I knew there was a guy named Shake. Mm. And I knew that he had been canceled. And I knew that there were think pieces about whether or not we're quick to cancel whether what how we define toxicity, whether or not it's okay to judge people by appearance, whether or not it's okay to say, uh, after you see someone, I'm not attracted to you in that way. I want my life partner to be someone I'm I they, they play I, I watched a little preview as, as part of the episodes I watched. And he said, I just didn't feel that animalistic attraction. Oh, my gosh. It took me a minute to realize that the deep Dee, who's now like entangled with someone else was that person. This whole experience might have been more interesting if, if the shake deep Dee thing had been playing out because I felt like a lot of the other interactions were really vapid. But that that one, as you say, Lori, gets to not just the heart of relationships, but culture and generations and and body image and so many things that are really at the heart of feminist discussion right now. Is it okay to have a type? Is it okay to ask someone what their body size is or what their body shape is? Uh, And I'm curious because I didn't see any interaction of them. Uh, I've got to assume based on what you're describing that they were both of South Asian descent. And was culture a connection point for them? Does that come up at all? In the show, race and culture in
2: any way. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so interesting that you raised that. They both were explicit about the fact that they had really only dated white partners before this. And so it came up as a connection point in the sense that um, they were both kind of wanting to to try dating within their race with each other for really the first time. And I would say that in general, the way that the show treats race is as kind of like another visual... factor. So it's a very bizarre perversion of race, like they sort of strip it of its cultural meaning. And they just say, you know, it's part of the can you see past looks conversation where the ideal is that you just don't see race. um, And therefore, you could go through an entire Time of dating someone, not know their race, get engaged, and then therefore prove how race blind you are um, by keeping the engagement. And that's exactly what happened with sort of the darlings of season one, uh, Lauren and Cameron, who are an interracial couple where Cameron's a white man and Lauren is the black woman.
0: Right. Although, by and large, like couples, I think, do you usually end up sharing the same racial or ethnic background on the show. And the show structures race as a superficial category that is reduced to looks, while gender is the absolute rule by which we naturally accept people are or are not attracted to each other. So one social category that has to do with power, they're like, yes, this is the law of the universe. And the other social category that has to do with 600 years of colonialism, violence, systemic inequality, ongoing inequality, they're like, "Eh, it's just visual in keeping with the idea that race is only visual culture becomes this almost aesthetic thing put on top of this very sort of like white heterosis normative idea of what marriage is. So like everyone gets married in a ceremony that involves like a woman walking down an aisle. Um, Even though for Sheik and Dipti, like there is a Hindu priest there and like there's a mariachi band for two of the contestants, who are Mexican American but the ceremony itself is just like structured as this sort of generic like Christian wedding, American wedding structure. So again, it goes back to the idea that race and culture are superficial in some way. And on the other hand, like characters do talk about, oh, we connected because of our culture or we both value our culture, we both value our family. So it really is this kind of like liberal fantasy of like, race as some, and culture as something that are cute when they're cute and otherwise are inconvenient and we don't have to engage with.
1: That's so interesting. From the snippets they showed of the weddings, they all looked the same. And I, I had a lot of trouble keeping characters apart. And so that's another question I have for the two of you to make sure I understood. What I pieced together in the After the altar season two reunion series is that Deep D and Kyle, the guy she's will they won't they friends with right now, were both on the losing end of love triangles, or they they were pining for people who weren't pining for them, or they're really set up as underdogs, not in a pathetic way, but to your point, Lori, like can you be virtuous or a woman scorned? It's like who deserves love? Everyone seemed to be saying these two deserve love, mm. these two mm-hmm. deserve love because they're both coming off of public televised humiliation.
0: And they're hot. Mm-hmm. Oh, and so Kyle is a character who um, originally is interested in Shayna, who is this, like, very white, white woman. I don't know how else to describe her. Uh, Christian and, like, really about it. And um, she basically is like, I don't want to marry someone who is not also very Christian in the way I'm very Christian. Um, and so you and I are not a match. And... As a viewer, you're just like, okay, great. Move on, everyone. But they just can't let it go. Shake in the reunion is like, oh, well, Shayna, you said yes to Kyle, even though you knew you weren't that into him because you wanted to keep going with the show, which like as a viewer, I mean, duh, reality television incentivizes people to make couples so that they can continue in reality television. That's literally how it's structured. That's like not a controversial thing to say, but... You know, it's also like from the beginning, they had this clearly irreconcilable difference, actually genuinely in terms of values and belief that Kyle refused to accept. He was just like, can't we try harder? And then later in the reunion, he's like, oh, you wasted my time. You wasted my time. It's like, bro, like she told you up front that you had irreconcilable differences. You just couldn't take the no. And so Kyle is portrayed as this really sweet character. And there is for me this sense of entitlement, exactly like you're saying, Layla, that well, I'm such a nice guy, I don't get why I didn't get this like fantasy girl.
1: That's the worst kind of toxic.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) Nice guy's
2: trademark. Okay, yeah. I think we could do a whole spin-off series just on Deepti and Shake or Deepti and Kyle even, but I want to make sure we get to some of the other storylines because there's so much there. So let's move on to Shane and Natalie. And Raina, I know you have thoughts on this couple. <laughs> Shane and Natalie, just to remind folks, were engaged throughout season two. And Natalie was portrayed as um, sort of this woman with her life together, um, a very very well-put-together consultant, I think she is. Uh, She's responsible with money. She's close to her family. And Shane was depicted as more of this sort of erratic wild card. He's kind of like a Chad. And despite their differences, they kept repeating throughout the season, both of them parroting this line, that they just had such a strong connection, this unbreakable bond. And they would continuously reassure us, despite kind of this not being what we would see in their interactions that they had this rock solid foundation um, in their relationship. And uh, to sort of complicate the matter and make more drama for us to follow throughout their courtship, the show kind of also depicted in parallel, this woman Shayna's interest in Shane, obviously, folks were shipping them because of their names. They're also both white and blonde. Natalie is East Asian, and so there was sort of this weird sort of racial dynamic going on where visually, like, Shane and Shayna um, sort of looked the part. They looked actually very similar. They could almost be brother and sister. And so Shane had sort of chosen Natalie in the pods, um, after which time Shayna sort of was like, I'm actually really interested in you. And Shane was like, it's too late. Um, and so they the show sort of made a big deal of that and stretched it out throughout the season. And ultimately, Natalie said no at the altar with Shane after they had a big fight the night before the wedding. And Raina, I wonder if you can talk about this dynamic a little bit, because I think this is one of the ones where there's sort of this big question mark. Is it toxic? Did it just not work out? I think a lot of people want to know, like, how they should be experiencing this relationship and its ultimate demise.
0: Shane made the hairs on my arm stand up and like not in a sexy way. You know, I don't know them. I can't diagnose anyone else's relationship dynamic, but like his behavior toward her and his reactions generally reminded me of like a- abusive dynamics in relationships. Um, Even from the beginning, he, Oh, God, I, I, it was convoluted, but was flirting with Shayna, someone asked someone, blah, blah, blah. The point of it is that he kind of wanted or was interested in both women and I think called Natalie Shayna by accident. And Natalie was, Ooh. yeah, some of us have been there. And Natalie was understandably upset about that. And um, the moment she has any kind of critique of him, he is claws out, just tearing in on her, in a way that I definitely recognize. Um, I think a lot of other folks who've experienced intimate partner violence would probably recognize, like that complete inability to accept any kind of feedback. Yeah. Any kind of accountability, except on your own terms, right? Because his refrain throughout the show is, I apologized a million times. Are you going to make me apologize the rest of my life? Which is so freaking classic. That's so interesting because
1: I read, I think before I watched the series, but I, I wasn't retaining who they were. I read that that couple was poorly matched because he needed a lot of reassurance and she critiqued him. And what you're describing sounds more true, and more illustrated in their actual interactions in the few episodes I saw. But the the media critique of well, you're probably just not a good match oh. if uh, if you like to give criticism and your partner can't take it. It
0: hurt. Like, it really hurt to watch. It really hurt to watch. Um, so the their kind of breakup at the end comes because the night before the wedding, um, he gets really drunk. They, quote, unquote, have a fight. I mean, I don't know what happened. And he, I guess, yells at her and says that he hates her and that she's ruining his life, something like that. Which, like, again super recognizable i think for folks who've experienced abuse dynamics in relationships it's just a nasty really scary thing like me speaking as a woman for a man to say to you like to have your partner who said that they love you direct that kind of hatred toward you is really scary and like i think very alarming and something that i found really upsetting was in the first reunion episode He again does this like evasive non-accountability accountability where he's like, I apologize for that night a million times, but can't we talk about the ways that you provoked me? And everyone, the rest of the cast is just sitting there like, yeah, you guys were so good together. We don't know what happened. And Natalie goes, oh, well, we tried dating after the show, but I just couldn't get past Like those words that you said, I I guess I just couldn't get over it as though it's somehow her fault. And I'm watching that and I'm like, girl, that's called a self-preservation instinct. Like when your body is telling you that what someone did to you is something you can't get over, like when you have that block you shouldn't get over it. Like, that sounds like a runaway signal. And the way that the rest of the cast is basically reinforcing that this woman shouldn't follow her intuition and instead should follow the, like, chemistry, quote-unquote, of this really toxic situation or situation that, like, for me, seems recognizable of some abuse dynamics. um, Really upsetting. She really is edited to be...
1: If not the villain, a real pill. But what's funny is when I sat down to watch this show with Chris, my husband, who was like begrudgingly agreeing to (laughs) get this three episode marathon with me. Wow, Chris! I accidentally turned on episode one of season two, so I watched the first five minutes where the Lichays come out and talk about how love is blind. And the only thing I saw from the regular season was this woman, Natalie, saying, "I'm an Asian American woman." People assume that I'm going to be quiet and timid. And when they meet me and they see that I'm driven and I'm louder, it's not what they were expecting. And it hurts me. And when I'm dating, I'm paraphrasing. And Vanessa mm-hmm. Lachey is like, yeah, girl. And I thought, yeah. oh, this is such a likable character. And then I said, oh, yeah. shit, we're, we're watching something that's going to get us yeah. in a like 10 episode arc. We got to go back to this reunion show and right. watch three episodes. <laughs> and then I fast forward to everybody's everybody's shitting on her.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, this storyline is definitely manipulated. They all are. And one of the ways you get people to watch is to sort of lean into existing prejudices, stereotypes, ideas that people have, or go directly in contrast to them. So, you know, I think a lot of that is happening with Natalie. She has also said in interviews that she felt like the experience of the show kind of was positive in term for her in terms of taking, quote, race out of the equation for her while she's dating. But I think for me, like this whole storyline, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but for me, it's this question of when is something toxic versus just kind of not working? And when is the framework of toxic helpful? I have
0: some thoughts. So I definitely think we use toxic as like a blanket term for a lot of different kinds of dynamics that range from Abuse that's like very dangerous and concerning to like, you know, okay, we just didn't mesh. So for me, it's like important actually to reframe to think about power and harm, right? And like I would think about harm as a feminist sort of inspired by the teachings of abolitionist feminists, um, transformative justice, abolitionist practitioners, where you know, we we hurt each other, we hurt ourselves, like we're people and we live in a lot of systems that create harm, perpetuate harm, imbue us with the capacity to do harm toward one another. And then there's power, right, and control in relationships. And for me, it's when those two things come together that we see a toxic or when there's more of a power and control dynamic and abusive dynamic, right? And I think that toxicity also in a relationship can sometimes describe when my sort of self-harming pattern, my pattern of harming myself and other people really interacts and has some like frission and tension with someone else or is compatible with someone else's negative pattern towards self and others. Margaret Atwood, for example, has a poem that's like, you fit into me like a hook into an eye, a fish hook, an open eye right? Which is that, yeah. So in my understanding, a really toxic relationship is one in which my pain and trauma and your pain and trauma or my vulnerabilities and your vulnerabilities and our bad coping mechanisms fit into each other exactly, but to a very negative and harmful rather than sort of empowering and healing effect. So like, with Shake and Dipti, for example, like Dipti talks in the beginning about feeling insecure about her body, um, having lost a lot of weight recently, which is, you know, fat phobia in the show is a whole other thing. But, um, and Shake, of course, comes right in and asks questions that are basically like, are you fat? Right. And you're like, girl, why would you keep seeing him again in the pods? And that's how he comes in. But it's like, oh, yeah, like her insecurity meshes perfectly with his shallowness and his fat phobia right and that creates a push and pull dynamic where she almost wants to win his affection and approval and he refuses to give it to her that's a toxic dynamic because it it latches on it's a push pull and it seems like chemistry so with shane and natalie i think what everyone in the show and like online is like oh they have so much chemistry well yeah like when you're in a dynamic that's toxic And certainly, abusive, there are a lot of sparks that fly, right? It's just not safe and healthy. That's an interesting
1: definition of toxic. I have a better understanding of how to define gaslighting, which I think is Mm. something that we have focused on as a culture. Mm. And we understand how that shows up in relationships and how that shows up in our politics. It's when someone makes you mistrust your own Mm -hmm. perception of the world. Or someone makes you feel like the way you're receiving information is wrong. And, um, and the world isn't as you perceive it, and and in a way that feeds your own insecurities. But I think blanketly, toxic relationships are ones that disrupt your trust. Mm -hmm. A healthy relationship is when you have absolute trust in one another. And a toxic relationship is what you're describing when there's something that perpetuates mistrust and insecurities. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I agree, there's so many overlaps with abuse. So that feeling of walking on eggshells or fearing that you might set someone off or not trusting uh, that someone else's perception of you is as positive uh, as you want it to be, or that it's dependent. It can shift with the way. Because yeah. I think that, you know, I, I feel like our fairy tale of love, what I'm looking for is someone who accepts me warts and all, who finds me beautiful inside and out and who, you know, all the cliches for someone where the, the love is constant and it's not dependent on all these other things. But I I think what this show really underscored for me was toxic insecurity. All of mm-hmm. these people are mm-hmm. so self-aware. They're mm. being watched Mm. None of them seem like they were very balanced Mm. or confident in their lives. None of them seem like they come from absolute self-confidence. Even Mm. the ones who are portraying self-confidence, a lot of them have stories of overcoming things or feeling uh, ready now to go and put themselves out there for something like this. But I don't know. You think this kind of person who's attracted to be a part of a show like this is more likely to have these toxic traits or to have experienced life circumstances that that make them perpetuate toxicity? Or is this the the same rate at which we would find these kinds of people on a dating app?
0: I think we're all these kinds of people. Like, I think that's also where like a transformative justice framework and an abolitionist framework really helps me because, and that's why it's helpful to go back to harm, right? Because it's like doing harmful stuff, harming yourself or other people doesn't make you a bad person or a harmful person or a particular kind of person, right? Like we all have dysfunctional patterns. They often show up in relationships because relationships trigger a lot of trauma and a lot of self-judgment and and we're so internalized to judge our value by them. Um, I think that reality shows attract people who, for whatever reason, feel a desire to see themselves on a big screen. I think there's a certain amount of ego you have to have and a certain amount of a mixture of insecurity, but kind of really gung-ho assurance that you want to be represented on such a huge media. It's so interesting to me as a feminist to watch these shows because precisely we can see these patterns play out that play out in a lot of people's dating lives. The question really is just, do we want to, and are we taking whatever steps are available to us, self-reflect and grow?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's one I've been thinking about a lot lately in relation to the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial, to be honest, Um, and not to go totally um, (laughs) sideways, but, you know, in, in relation to this show, like what that trial made me think about was the fact that really, we no longer you know, reserve the idea of this big platform, um, only for celebrities that, you know, Johnny Depp had a particularly large platform by which he could humiliate Amber Heard. But with social media, with all of us, even kind of how we're represented in our friend group, and all of us kind of Looking to build our own brands, even if we're not in media or marketing, that's just becoming a bigger part of culture and society. I think there's more of an opportunity to use the threat of exposure or trying to control the narrative as a factor in what's an mm. otherwise like you know, somewhat private relationship Mm. dynamic. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this idea that with like, love is blind, they're all trying to control the narrative and be depicted as sort of this virtuous person. And it's sort of an underlying factor in a lot of what they end up arguing about, I think, to a lesser, but still significant extent, that's present in a ton of relationships today, that even the specter of being able to Mm -hmm. tell friends or family on either side, either that you are being abused or to hold some piece of information over a partner in an abusive manner is really like more present than ever before. And I just wonder how that's impacting our relationship dynamics, especially like for younger people. And so that's why I really do worry about the messages that people get from a show like this in terms of like who ends up winning or on top. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it starts to feel like no matter what really happened, whoever can kind of come out on top in the public eye or on social media or with family or friends, that becomes the sort of, you know, person who was right, the person who is deserving of love, Um, you know, the person who is understood as like being the non-problematic one. And I just see that playing out more and more and I don't think that trial helped at all no
1: and and I think it's not just uh who deserves love but there must be a winner and and a loser there Mm -hmm. must be a right one and a wrong one and all marriages all relationships all conversations are are a dichotomy and you have to pick a winner oh my gosh I don't think that's sideways at all I mean I was just there you know Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie have been in the headlines again because she's just filed another suit making more public more of her abuse claims of him and I think it's it's so similar to Johnny Depp in terms of stature. And uh, what's different is that she has more power than Amber Heard, I think, in the media and right now with public perception. But is there a news story? Is there a trial you could watch that could change your perception of Brad Pitt? Because apparently there isn't one you can watch that can change people's opinions of Johnny
0: Depp. Yeah, I mean, you know, and we're all feminists who've been on the feminist internet for quite some time at this point. And I think that I, as like a, feminist writer and sort of a culture that we all contributed to and like co-created in some ways, like there's some accountability there in terms of this idea of like the perpetrator, right? The perpetrator and the victim. And like when I'm thinking about the early days of like me as a blogger a Feministing, for example, there was so much power in movements at that time to name sexual violence and to name folks who'd caused harm. And I think that When we're dealing with people in positions and institutions that seem to be beyond reproach or accountability, like being public about it can be really helpful. But I do think that because we live in such a deeply carceral culture, right, we live in a culture and society that has an entire structure meant to torture people in terms of jails and prisons by labeling them bad people and taking them away from society, like when we think about relationship dynamics and abuse, I think it can be really easy in the society that we've all been brought up in to say, this person is the perpetrator. They're the bad person. I'm the victim. I'm the good person. And like, there aren't bad and good people, you know, people are people who do harmful things. I think that it's really obviously important to name harm and violence and to name the power dynamics that produce abuse. This is not to say that someone who is abusing someone else doesn't have accountability for that. It's just to say that when we hold the idea that the abuser, quote-unquote, is bad and the victim, quote-unquote, is innocent, one, we leave out a lot of folks who've been harmed who don't fit racist, sexist, you know... Uh, transphobic notions of who is innocent or who is virtuous or who is deserved to be heard. And we also leave out the fact that, you know, a lot of folks who have been abused go on to abuse and abuse is often related to structural and systemic power dynamics, right? So I think there's a lot of ways that the structure of dating shows and like the editing really evokes this idea that there are good guys and bad guys and winners and losers in relationships. I also think that the structure sort of mimics a lot of unhealthy relationship dynamics. For example, all of these people are taken away from their communities, put in these little tiny boxes where they're experiencing a level of sensory deprivation and then told, okay, now you're going to fall in love, right? And like, what do we see in an abusive relationship? Like one tactic of abuse is to isolate the person who's being harmed from community support. It makes us more vulnerable. It makes us more impressionable and feel more dependent on the person harming us. So these are all like psychologically kind of really standard ways to isolate, alienate people and make them put them in circumstances where they do things they might not otherwise do if they were in a space where they were well-resourced and in the embrace of
2: community. Boom, mic drop. You dropped it so hard that the, the car alarm went off.
0: Oh, yeah. That was all me. Power of my words.
1: We haven't talked about the other woman, Mallory, the curly girl who's also portrayed as a woman scorned. And there's oh, yeah. a lot of negative talk about how she's not vulnerable, especially from her ex.
0: Oh, my god. Yeah. And
1: so what you're describing, Reina, about a tactic of abuse is isolation. And isolation makes you more vulnerable to all kinds of things. This woman seems rightfully to have some guards up because yes. people are dragging her into a scenario yes. where her ex-fiance is going to parade around his, uh, his new relationship. And everyone is constantly checking in with her, including the cameras and super close up to say, are you feeling miserable? You are not <laughs> adequately displaying misery.
0: I really admire Mallory. Like her composure is just incredible.
1: What was her arc in the show? What was she like in the season? I feel like I'm only getting these people at their worst or their most miserable.
2: Well, I hate to break it to you, Layla, but she was a slight homewrecker, but we Ooh. love her anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who among us has not?
2: <laughs> Who among us can throw a stone? Um, actually, I think it would be easier if we talk about like one more couple and Mallory yeah. will come up. Because when you all were discussing... Oh, yeah these tendencies to make good guys and bad guys, I really thought about Jared and Ayana. And Mm. I really thought about, especially Ayana, who is probably my favorite cast member. Mm. And speaking of vulnerability, was sort of herself from day one. Um, She's really quirky, she's really goofy. Like even compared to a lot of the ways in which Black women are told to show up in TV, she was sort of subverting that. Like she never kind of showed up and you know, fulfilled stereotypes that people I think were trying to put on her. Um, she was just like, "I'm a quirky black girl, and I like to stay home and drink tea." And let me know if you have a problem with that. And throughout the the season, she actually disclosed to the person she would eventually become engaged to, Jarrett, that she is a sexual assault survivor. And she was described by Jarrett as resilient in the face of that. And that's one of the things he cited as a reason that he wanted to be with her because of her strength and resilience. And Jarrett, by contrast, is sort of depicted as this fun loving social butterfly, the kind of life at the party. Um, he ends up after the season wraps working as a bouncer. So he's like out till 4am all the time. He's always shown like staying out late to drink with his friends, have fun. And speaking of Mallory, he famously had a another love interest in the pods. So he and Mallory also had a connection, and he seemed to float the idea of marriage to Mallory, which she sort of shut down. And after that, he then proposed to Ayana, and they went on to be married. So that sort of was Mallory's storyline. And so the show kind of depicted her as sort of toying with them. And they tried to depict Ayana as kind of the sloppy seconds, I'm using that term with with major like feminist irony quotes. But one thing that like, I actually appreciate it because I think we've been a l- little bit hard on the show and it definitely deserves that but I want to give a little bit of a cookie in the sense that I thought Ayana's storyline was somewhat carefully um, shared and you know Ayana's an op- adoptee her adopted parents show up in the show a black family they seem kind of pretty young comparatively. So um, it's really kind of like a non traditional family structure that they have going on. And I I thought that that was depicted kind of beautifully. And their love for her is really present throughout the show, they defend her, um, they support her, they show up for her, there is never a moment where the the familial nature of their bonds is kind of questioned or undermined. Um, So I appreciated that. And I also didn't See, I'm curious if either of you did kind of any victim blaming or. You know, shaming of Ayana around her sexual assault storyline. I would have liked like a little bit less of a heavy pour on the resiliency narrative, but that's just me. I really just wanted to make sure we did touch on Jarrett and Ayana, and you know, I wanted to ask both of you, even though they didn't end up together. And after the altar, um, Ayana actually moves out, but I thought they both, Jarrett and Ayana, were still kind of some of the most mature folks, even though they kind of were struggling to make it work, and Jarrett was like. Yeah, I do love to party and stay out on it. And I need to work on that. I was still kind of rooting for them as a couple. And I'm curious if you all were, too, or if you saw elements of toxicity in their dynamic as well.
1: They're definitely rooting for them. What's interesting is when you were saying, Reina, before that, you know, we have to have an absolute definition of the abuser and the victim, I was thinking about uh, Ayana's uh, adoptive mom. They show in the reunion them all going out to dinner. Her parents are all read in. She tells them everything. Like we're we're struggling. I've moved out. I love him, but we can't live together because he's partying all night, and I don't know what to do about that. And his dad is learning for the first time in front of the cameras. We're we're meant to believe, and everybody is laying it on Jared, and he's he's very performatively accepting it all. That like, I need to do better. This dinner is me announcing I'm going to do better. But then at one point, the adoptive mom says to Ayana, now. This isn't all on you. You can't just have a relationship where your job is to criticize him. And I thought, wow, that's you don't see that kind of nuance. And I wasn't expecting that. I think that it wasn't at all abuse blaming. It was, a I think, a good parenting to say you can't spin out in this narrative. If you're in a relationship where you're just critiquing, you're not reflecting on yourself and how you got here.
2: Yeah. And I, I like I feel like she was also saying, like, don't be that sanctimonious kind of like yeah. virtue signaler. like still exactly. stay in it. You know, I I thought that was well done as well.
0: I mean, Ayana is amazing. She's so lovely to watch because she's, I, I agree with you, Lori, that the resilience narratives are overdone, really overdone. And like people, especially marginalized people, should not have to continually endure, right? Much wiser folks than I have said it much more eloquently. But what I love about Ayana is like, she's so active about her own healing Like, she's really self-aware, self-reflective, and seems to genuinely be engaged with her own process of growth. And, like, she just seems like someone who has clearly done a lot of work to support and, like, nourish and nurture herself. And she seems really loving toward herself. Like, a lot of the other women on the show were extraordinarily self-critical. And Ayana seems like she has really worked to cultivate self-love. And like, I think that shines through, you know, you could be on the cringiest reality show, but like I'm watching from the outside, but like what I perceive as like the enactment of genuine self-care really seemed to shine through for me.
2: I love that. I think so too. And I actually think it took all the wind out of the sails of the Mallory plotline in a way. Yes. You know, not blaming anyone who... Couldn't do that. But I feel like Ayana's whole vibe and confidence and self love just kind of didn't allow for that narrative to really go anywhere.
0: Yeah. And I loved the scene with Ayana and Jared's parents because, you know, like we were talking about earlier, abuse and toxicity in relationships thrives in isolation. And the antidote is always community and support, right? Like, and genuine community, not. The facsimile of community, which is actually just, you know, we're all cloud chasing because it's a reality show. Or judging. Or judging, yeah. But, like, to see a a group of people get together to genuinely discuss, like, these two people's relationships, like, seemingly from a place of love and to talk concretely about, like, okay, like, how can we make changes to better respect one another, like, I think it's really rare to see that. And that was super cool for me. And the opposite of what shows like this typically do. Yeah.
1: And I think when you said genuine community, I immediately thought of how disingenuine the community that's portrayed in at least yeah. the episodes I watched are. Because the the thing that I wanted to ask both of you about is not toxic individuals, but this toxic march to the altar yes. that seems yes. to be the theme of the show so there's the there's the married couple uh Nick and Danielle who are it's set up as though they've rented a house and everybody else is visiting them and they're hosting a party but clearly this is all the show has staged all of this but they have been designated the hosts yeah and before they go anywhere the first the first episode I saw they're pushing Deepti and Kyle yeah. to make a move and and take their relationship to the next level they're just running around hyping marriage. Yeah. It seemed like they they reminded me of like the people you hire for uh you know a bar mitzvah to to yeah. get people going. They're like everybody <laughs> dance. We're going to have an 80s party.
2: Nobody leaves without a ring. Nobody leaves without a spouse. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so true, but sadly like they also remind me of my I'm sorry, I love you all, of my married friends and also my friends with kids who I am certain are happy in their relationships and want the best for me and want the best for everyone in their lives, but also kind of seem to be deep in their decision and not maybe the best narrators or arbiters of like, whether or not that same exact decision is like the right one for me.
0: I mean, or like Nick and Danielle, who recently announced they're divorcing, maybe real shallow in their decision and trying to convince themselves by convincing everyone else that my life path which has aligned with what our culture tells us is the life path, is in fact the best life path, right? I don't know if, if it's even that deep,
1: right? It's like this this show and a lot of shows, they set up marriage as the only, it's like you have two dates and then you get married. Yeah. Maybe some of these couples would have worked out if they had just said, okay, I'll go on a fourth date with you. Okay, let's, let's continue dating and living on our own. This idea that marriage is this point in time and that after you clear that point, happily ever after is so nutty especially in a culture where we're so judgmental about arranged marriage other cultures oh oh my god we are having feminist conversations about forced marriage and early Uh, marriage but it's like it's okay if it's a reality show if we dress people up in virginal white and march them down an aisle for ratings but then over there people getting married that's wrong
0: oh yeah i mean there's a moment in the reunion show where shake is like justifying his fat phobia and he's like oh well marriage is like making a really big purchase and everyone is like gasp clutch our pearls how can you possibly compare marriage to an economic decision and i'm just like sometimes misogynists actually have the correct interpretation of patriarchal (laughs) culture except they're in support of it right (laughs) whereas like your average liberal is often like oh no marriage is about love it has nothing to do with economics like we know this in patriarchal cultures marriage is an economic arrangement in which women are in various ways exchanged like this is classic we know this right and like saying this on a reality show the very plot of which incentivizes through all kinds of material and social gain getting married like uh yeah you hit the nail on the head you just said the thing
2: you said the quiet part out loud and i think for me what's cringiest about the way this show sets it up is they depict the idea of getting married in the context of a heterosexual relationship to a conventionally attractive person as the most motherfucking radical thing you can do in your life. And something oh my God. that is against all odds and no one has ever done before. And they literally describe it as uh, an experiment that um, is subversive. And I think that's the part that bothers me because there's so much about the way the show is set up that actually could, if it were just treated slightly differently and probably like not within a capitalist framework, could actually be radical and interesting if they did explicitly connect it to traditions, you know, that are of other cultures where there is community and family invested um, in building community together. I think there's something there. I think there's something to calling out conventional norms around attractiveness to deconstructing standards of beauty and ideals. Like I'm here for all of that, but the way the show does it, it's a faux aesthetic um, of radicalism uh, but it's not actually deconstructing any of these concepts in radical ways it's just reinforcing them it's
1: true i do think that there was more here i expected to really suffer through three episodes and then come here and have to say i know i'm supposed to like or at least ironically like reality tv but i can't take it one of the big takeaways i had from this whole reunion thing is they seem to be both vilifying and obsessing over people who are interested in more than one person at the same time, which could be, it's a whole other podcast.
0: Oh my God, Mm, whole other podcast.
1: The thing that maybe in addition to thinking about how do we shake up the heteronormative fat phobic nature of the show, it's also why are people meeting just one-on-one? The only way you could do this in a way that would really shake things up is to, is to have people meet without looking at each other. But Be able to meet more than one person at the same time or just it's pretending that dating if you in isolation is somehow different than dating anywhere else.
0: The way to do this that would shake things up is like, oh, you have an impulse to come onto a reality dating show. Like, why don't you go take some time, get enough sleep, like focus on self-love and self-care create like like adapt some healing practices give it a year and then see if you still want to be on a reality dating show i just think there's a lot of other things to do in the world like volunteer for your local abortion clinic
2: it's fine i think we need a love is blind polyamorous commune season and (laughs) i am also desperate for a crossover season with my other favorite similar reality show which is married at first sight which is like love is blind but with therapist and i think the fake tv therapist getting involved spoiler alert is not that helpful
1: <laughs> i like your version though rain i think we should fundraise for it it's like whatever the opposite of like love is blind community has vision yes but it's not a show it's it's just instead
2: of doing the show we just don't <laughs> it's right. a of, love it okay we solved it for you netflix <laughs> When Marie Rose moved to Alaska in 2016, it was the first time she ate high quality wild Alaska salmon. Between the mislabeling of fish and poor quality seafood she experienced growing up in Michigan, she knew there was an opportunity to make top quality, nutritious, and sustainably fished Alaska salmon more accessible across the country. So Marie co-founded Shoreline Wild Salmon. How is their seafood
1: of the highest quality? It's wild caught in the icy waters of Alaska and fished with a hook and line method. That means each salmon is caught, cleaned, and filleted one at a time right off the coast of Alaska. Today, Shoreline Wild Salmon ships directly to customers all over the United States. Check them out at ShorelineWildSalmon.com and use the code EATWILD10 for 10% off your first order.
2: Make it sound- We want to do like a toxic round. So we're going to do our regular cringe fire round, but we wanted to add some toxic themed rapid fire questions. So Raina, as our special expert guest, we want just kind of your first reaction to these prompts. Are you ready? No, but yes, let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Is it toxic to... DM or text with other people while you are in a monogamous relationship, a la Adam Levine or possibly, allegedly, Shane.
0: Oh, my God. I could care less.
2: Great. <laughs> <laughs> Next one.
0: <laughs> no, my actual answer to that is, like, people love to kind of, like, obsess over rules and violations in relationships and like oh you had a technical violation of our contract and like again the question's always about power and care right like what are the root causes of the shit that we're doing to each other where's that coming from what's the deeper issue with the adam levine thing just don't like ew also you're really old and she's like in her early 20s it's gross on a lot of levels but also I am so sick of people creating arbitrary relationship rules and deciding that that is law and not having a power analysis.
2: Next one. Is it toxic to engage in negging or (laughs) negative talk slash banter?
0: I mean, again, it's about power. But like, I think that a lot of people, I will say especially men on dates, really like to test boundaries by being unkind toward folks they go on dates with and I think that if you go on a date with someone who is not acting like you are the most amazing person in the entire world in a reasonable measured way like if someone's being mean to you and it doesn't feel good that's not a basis for a relationship and that's not someone I would want to be around
1: is it toxic to watch this show
0: oh I mean I did it so yes
1: (laughs) what about to force your ex to hang out with your new partner
0: it's toxic to force anyone to do anything
2: period okay last one is it toxic to pressure your friends to date get engaged get married have kids to ship them in any way
0: yes it's not nice to pressure your friends around relationships like consent is consent people that's an overarching thing.
2: I have some apology texts to write. So, we need oh, to cut okay. Short.
0: <laughs> I will say pressure is different than encourage, right? That's yeah, a whole other like encourage is different, but I think that like why aren't you dating? You should be dating. Why aren't you doing what I'm doing in my life? Like that's not cool. If it's just like, oh hey, you seem to really like that person, like, why not
2: give a second data shot? Like,
0: you know, there are subtle differences.
2: I have two friends that I really think would get along, but I'm trying to figure out what that means for me. <laughs> you know one sick. of them, Raina. Oh. We'll go off podcast for that one. Okay.
0: I mean, I'm also open to being set up.
2: I have through. three friends. <laughs> 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 Okay, it's time for our cringe fire. Are you ready? Yeah. Reyna, is there another show that you're binging right now?
0: Abbott Elementary's new season just came out. It's so nice. Love it. Quinta, come
1: on our show. Ooh, yeah. What is something in the world that you're finding super cringy right now?
0: Okay, this is ongoing. It was in the news a lot this summer. This is much deeper than a cringe. This is a full body horror. And it is, quote unquote, feminist jails. So basically, the proposal that has come out to build, quote unquote, gender sensitive prisons or jails in New York City, a lot of lawmakers and I just learned on Teen Vogue, Gloria Steinem are behind this, which, like, unsurprising. But jail is not, nor could ever be, feminist.
1: Unsurprising, but still disappointing.
2: Awful. Yeah. Well, on a brighter note, is there an aspect of sex or sexuality you would like to see portrayed or better portrayed in media?
0: More bi and queer women doing everything always. More bi and queer people of all genders doing everything always. Also, I want to do away with the sex scene where it's like, you know, the sex scene where we're supposed to think it's like really hot and normal. It's like a romantic comedy. And they're like, ooh, we are horny. We like each other. There's tension. We want to have sex. And then the sex is like the ostensibly cis dude just kind of like puts it into the ostensibly cis woman. And her face is like, I'm in pleasure. And then a second later, she has an orgasm. And, like, whoever out there loves that in their sex life, I support you. It's just, like, not most people's thing, I imagine. And it's so unrealistic for most people. There's no hands. I'm just, like, you don't even (laughs) touch her with your hands. Hands is a good summary of that answer. Hands. Hands. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Top
1: five answer of all time. I love it. (laughs) All right, final question. What is your favorite sex scene oh
0: i don't know about like favorite of all time but i just read the book my education it is a very steamy novel with some problematic power dynamics that are portrayed really interestingly yeah by susan Choi. um there's a lot of just like very juicy lesbian sex and i loved it say less yeah ordering that now yeah it's also affairs. <laughs> I love affair plot Amazing. Raina, Amazing.
1: you've been such an incredible desk. Thank you for pushing us to do this. I know Lori has been itching to do reality TV. I'm so glad that we <laughs> had all three of us to be able to do this.
0: Thank you for humoring me.
2: Thank you so much to our guest, Reina Gattuso. Her website is reinagattuso.com. That's R-E-I-N-A-G-A-T-T-U-S-O.com. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker creates our logos and cover art. DL Dallas Engram created our original theme song.
1: And AK and the Hallucinations created our new theme song, which you can hear between segments. You can find DL on SoundCloud and Amy Klein of AK and the Hallucinations on Spotify. As always, thank you for cringe watching with us and tell a friend about the show.